morning to all who are online, but also good morning to all who are here. I'm going to preach from here, if that's okay. You all well? God is good. You know, those hymns, <laughs> I often ask them to just sing hymns and include hymns, probably more than they would like me to ask, but I ask frequently. And, um, you know, when I was six years old, I actually, I don't know how old I was, five, six. Um, there's a, um, so I don't know what it, oh, it's the children. Okay. It's like my house. So um, I was singing a song, Take My Life and Let It Be. Who knows that song? You know, and I looked up to, I just, you know, I was in a small Presbyterian church. Actually, it wasn't that small. And I just remember it like it was yesterday, and it was the night I got saved, in a sense, as a child. And I remember I was singing, could somebody ask them to just turn it down, please? Thank you. Sorry. And um, singing, and I looked up and I saw, I didn't really understand it as a child, but I saw just the Lord um, on his throne and just stand up. And I remember understanding what I was singing. A child doesn't understand, you know, take my life, take my money, take my gold, take my feet, my hands. But I remember it's the spiritual thing that the Lord will do. And I was understanding it and I meant it with all my heart, you know. And those hymns, there's just something so powerful about them. So, good morning. It's good to see you all. It really is good to be back. Uh, I took a little break and um, that is over. When you get back in the saddle, you know, everything comes at you, but that's wonderful. But, so Happy New Year. I haven't said Happy New Year to you all. Happy New Year. I trust it will be a wonderful year. I have one announcement to quickly make, and that is about, it's a very exciting announcement, is that we're going to be fasting. And um, <laughs> I'm so excited. So, so excited, as you can see. And so, February... First to the February 21st, we're going to be doing a 21-day fast. That doesn't mean every one day, every, everybody must fast 21 days. Uh, very few do, but I will give more details about this next week. I just wanted to let you know you can join us for however long, but we will fast as a body. And um, I am considering doing two Wednesdays of just teaching um, on fasting. You know, normally I've done it on the Sunday, but as we've grown, we may need to I uh, have some other evenings. So, I, who feels that they've never fully understood or been equipped to fast correctly or they just want to grow in, is there, how many? Stick your hand really high. All right. We'll get back to you about that. It won't be this week, Wednesday. If we do do it, it'll be the following two. And it'll be about an hour or so of teaching for two weeks in a row. Just on fasting. What does the Bible say about fasting? Amen. So, I want to speak to you this morning. I'm not fully sure how far we're going to get, or even which direction the Lord wants us to go in. So I've left it open with my notes, but I want to speak to you about the King's kingdom and the King's bride. You know, with everything going on in the world and uh, with all the things that, opinions and facts and non-facts and all the stuff that's happening, you know, it's a good time for us to come back and what does the scripture say? about the kingdom and what does the scripture say about the church, which is the bride. And it's to also have a bigger picture. I often say in leadership context, sorry, I'm going to move this just because I'm strange and it's in my purview and I'm going to keep looking at it. But I often say in leadership context, keep the bigger picture before you. Hold the bigger picture in front of you, otherwise you'll be destroyed in the details. Who knows that? It's like parenting. Get them to 19 alive. You know, keep the bigger picture before you or you'll be destroyed in the details. So today we're going to look at that bigger picture. And I'm going to start with a story uh, that I've shared probably a few times here before. About um, three years ago, I was driving in my car and out of the, I mean, I was just worshiping, singing, but it felt like out of the blue, I heard this, the Lord in my mind, but loud. Uh, it's like you hear it in your head and that doesn't happen to me too much, but I heard he asked me a question, and he said, son, why is it that my people continually become more enamored with the tools I give to reveal me than they become enamored with me myself? And I pulled over, and I wept. Um, 
because it's like he just showed me all from the beginning of history. First it was, you know, creation. Then it was the law. And they became so enamored with the law that they couldn't even see Christ. And then Christ came. Then it was salvation. Then the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Then the gifts and all the things and all the stuff that we embrace and believe and see and God is moving and we've seen so many healed and that's wonderful and changed. But God's people continually seem to embrace or becoming almost in love with the things that God gives to reveal Him more than actually Him. Yeah? And it's just part of human nature. It's part of that self from the old nature. And um, so God just began to take me on a journey and my entire focus began to shift and change. And I do woodwork. Uh, well, I used to. <laughs> I try to do it, I just don't have a lot of time as much as I used to, but I love woodwork, I have a little wood shop, so I'm like a wannabe woodworker. And um, it's in my garage, I call it a shop, it's a garage. <laughs> I have to admit it. But I learned something, and the Lord will often speak to me when I'm in there. And I learned that if we are focused on the tools that God has given us, we have to stay focused on the tool. If I'm holding a circular saw or some, some sort of power tool, if I don't stay focused on the tool, it's dangerous. Yeah? You don't just swing it around. But if I focus on becoming a tool in God's hands, my focus is the one who's holding me. And my focus is the project that he's building. It's a big difference. We become tools in his hand. The one who requires surrender. The other doesn't as much. Because the gifts and call are irrevocable. He won't take them away. Am I making sense? So, and that's what Jesus said, I will build my church. I will build. I'm the builder. I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I want to start with a quote from C.S. Lewis. And um, I trust this offends some of you it'll wake us up, which is good. He's, who's ever heard of Screwtape Letters? Okay, most of you. You know, it's, it's a strange book. I love it, because it's a demon who's writing to his nephew demon about how to influence this person. And uh, it's such a great, it's obviously C.S. Lewis did it to expose the way the enemy thinks and the way the enemy works. It's outstanding. I encourage you to read it. This little excerpt is taken from C.S. Lewis uh, from that book, and he's talking about patriotism or pacifism. Today, you could put other words to it. Let's read. Whichever, this is Screwtape writing to this little, I think his name was Wormwood, this little demon, telling him how to influence. He said, whichever he adopts, your main task will be the same. Let him begin by treating the patriotism or the pacifism, obviously of their nation or group, as a part of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of a partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part, in a sense of his faith. Then quietly and gradually nurse him onto the stage at which religion becomes merely part of the cause in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce in favor of other patriotism or pacifism. Because you'll find both in the Bible. The attitude which you want to guard against is that which in which temporal affairs are treated primarily as material for obedience. In other words, make sure that he doesn't understand that sometimes difficult things happen to awaken people. And make sure that he doesn't understand the early, what the early disciples understood, that every opportunity they got to preach was then put before councils and judges and Sanhedrins. But they, God taught them how to take a difficulty and change it. It was one of their prime weapons. And so this, he says, make sure he doesn't understand that. And he says, once you have made the world, the system of the world, once you have made the world an end and faith a means, you have almost won your man. And it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he is pursuing. Provided that meetings, pamphlets, policies, movements, causes, and crusades matter more to him than prayer, sacraments, charity, or we would say love, then he is ours. And the more religious in a sense, he becomes about all these things that he's using Christianity as a tool for, the more securely he will be ours. I could show you a whole cage full of them down here. 
Good morning. <laughs> Paris Reader gives definition of humanism versus Christianity. Humanism is the end of all being is the happiness of man. That's what humanism is. The end of all being is the happiness of man, and it inf infiltrates every single part of our thinking, especially in, this, in the West, in this culture. You know, even Christianity infiltrates to such a degree that even if you have, which sounds wonderful, a gospel-centric focus, a gospel-centric vision, you will find that over time, as much as that is good, over time, man will become the center, because the gospel, which is good, the word means good news, the gospel is amazing and it's wonderful. Obviously, the Bible says preach the gospel, but if that becomes the only focus, man becomes the center. Then everything, we use the provisions of Christ to make man happy. I get saved so that I can go to heaven. I do this, God will heal me, God will do this, God will do this. I use all the provisions of Christ with a humanism outlook. All the things that he's done is to make me happy. And humanism starts to come in and man becomes the center again. <laughs> but a kingdom-centric person. Christianity says that the end of all being is the glory of God. And only God can bring a person to have that in their heart, where it's not some religious little quote. You can't force that upon a person. Parents, leaders, hear me. Isaiah says, you cannot teach the fear of God through the commandments and the doctrines of men. You cannot say to a person, you must fear God. Only God can do something in the heart. <laughs> Christianity says, the end of all being is the glory of God. And that's... That focus, that lens is the way I'm going to approach this topic because there's a deep burning inside of me for the church of God, the bride of Christ, to become not just here, not, not even successful, just who God intended her to be, for the church to become God's original plan, God's original intent. And it is just, it burns on my heart, and you see these things that sound wonderful and good, but they actually put us at the center. And that's when things get weird, right? Yeah? I have more gifts than you. Oh, well, I have to. It's just, it's just strange. So, we have to see it turn around. Hello? Yeah? We have to see it turned around. There are ancient paths that God has shown us very clearly in His Word, and we forget them. And so, culture starts to and I'm not against the world, obviously not. No, they are actually the focus of our attention in terms of mission. And they have the same value as people that are saved and unsaved have the same value. I don't know if you know that. Because before the coin, the parable of the lost coin, when the coin was lost, was it, was it, was it value less? No, it just had no purpose. See, we have to understand, we have to understand that there are ways that God has given us that culture will work its way to such a degree that we could, that couldn't possibly be real. That couldn't possibly be the way. That couldn't possibly be true. That's way, way too offensive. I'll tell you some stories. William Booth said this 100 years ago. Who knows William Booth? Salvation Army. The chief danger, most of you have probably heard this. It's a well-known quote. The chief danger, danger that confronts the coming century this is a hundred years ago, will be religion without the Holy Spirit, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance. Some of these will mean more to you than others will because you would have seen it, experienced it, thought about it. Salvation without regeneration, politics without God and heaven without hell. A large percentage of the church does not believe that hell exists. He was spot on a hundred years ago. But you know, this man, William Booth, I'm just going to tell you one or two stories. He, um, he, was not a, he was a strong, just a direct man, you know, and he would preach. And we don't see that anymore. And it's what I've been praying for long, that the preachers of old, that God would do something in my own heart, but even our hearts collectively, even as a culture. You know that he would preach and that they would hand out hymn books at the back. And some of them were like small hymn books, like 25 pages or so. They would hand out hymn books, and you know that after his preaching, he would stand and deliver and preach and preach. That conviction would so come upon the people. 
saved and unsaved, so come upon the people that the, the chairs were called wet chairs. They were wet with sweat. Because people, the, the trembling of the Lord. And the hymn books would be shredded. So conviction would come. The angst would sit there and without knowing it, shred hymn books into little pieces. Because of the conviction of the Lord. Have you ever seen that? <laughs> Same thing with a guy called W.P. Nicholson. They used to gather after the meeting and pick up all the little pieces of shredded paper. He was an Irish revivalist. Conviction. Changes nations. Changes cities. And only the Holy Spirit can do it. Only the Holy Spirit can do it. But you know, before William Booth would preach, he would pray the night before, and he would call a meeting, and this is going to make some of you uncomfortable, which I've become quite okay with. He would call a meeting, and they would, they would pray. And you know, they would start praying, and you know, and then, and then they would, um, I'm done. And you know, he was pretty bold, pretty direct. He would get up, and he would stand there and say, pray, pray, like that. And he was gruff, pray, that's how he would speak. Pray. And then, okay. And then pray. 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, one hour, two hours. Pray. People are going to hell. Pray, pray. Three hours to pray. And he would shout, get a hold of God. Get a hold of him. Get a hold of him. Get a hold of God. Don't let him go. Pray. And then the power of God would come. People would just shout victory and people would shake and we 50 tomorrow, 20 tomorrow. People would come and get saved in those numbers. W.P. Nicholson, when he would preach, people say sweat would run so off people, you'd see sweat dripping off the edge of their nose and leave pools on the floor. <laughs> Evan Roberts, who knows the Welsh revivalist, Evan Roberts, he was a young man, he would come up is, this is a true story. It was a meeting of about 800 people, and he came up, and he came into the building. 800 people sitting there waiting. Think of, the, think of our culture, what they would do. 800 people. And he walked in, and he sat down. He was supposed to preach. He sat down, knelt down on the front seat, and began to pray. And he stayed there for three hours. <laughs> Today, everyone would leave. People say, well, this is ridiculous. I mean, you can't expect that. I mean, we've got plans and kids. and I, I, I hear you. I have kids. But this is what happened. And he would pray for hours. Many times that happened. Most, some people just leave. Um, if you need to leave this meeting, you're welcome to leave. <laughs> it's like, you better not go now. And he would just pray. But then he stood up that night. And he spoke for 15 minutes. And the entire region changed. Revival broke out. William J. Seymour. He had come in. Everyone would be waiting. Revival was already happening. He would sit and put a cardboard box over his head. For real. Most of you know this. A black man. When black men weren't allowed to do what they should have been allowed to do. And put a box over his head and just pray in front of the room. Everyone sit and watch him with a cardboard box over his head. Pray, one hour, two hours, three hours. And take it off and the Spirit of God would break out. <sighs> Not humanism. Christianity. Christianity. <sighs> so, with that heart, we still okay? These are the things that I think about. These are the things that I pray about frequently. I used to, when I was a boy, I used to go stand in the garden and preach to the trees, the grass. Because friends, without Jesus Christ, we have nothing. We have no hope. No hope in this life, nor in the grave, nor in the one to come. So, let's preach a sermon. The king's kingdom. I really wanted to focus. I'm just going to bend this one second, man. Sorry, everybody. There we go. Is that better? There we go. The king's kingdom and the king's bride. I really want to speak about the church, the bride of Christ. 
you know, a lot of people will spend the first couple of weeks in the year giving vision. This is our vision, and we do have a vision here to create a culture, to build a culture where people actually know God, because that's what eternal life is, to know God, John 17, 3. But as much as we could do that, the Lord put it on my heart, give them my vision, give them my intent, give them my plan. How many of you know that there's two people in the Bible that so cried out, they asked the same thing, two people, for God to become a habitation, to come and live with us? One was Moses. So they built a temple. The other was David. So he built a, t- uh, he built a tabernacle. David built a tent and a tabernacle uh, temple with his son Solomon. But you know both times it actually says that God gave them the plans, like actual plan blueprints. Why? Both of them had the same heart. God, come, come. But God only inhabits what he designs. Remember that. God only inhabits what he designs. And you know what? He designed you. And he fits in you the best because he made you in his image. And you are the New Testament church. You. And he fits in you the best because you look like him. Hello? See the destruction of something like evolution? Just thought I'd throw that in there. So, <laughs> let's get the king's kingdom. I really want to speak about the church, the bride. What was God's intent? What is the Lord? What does the scripture say? You know, and this is material that I haven't actually touched on for years. Because we just assume, well, people know. But I've learned they don't. And it's a good reminder for us. But unless we can see that the kingdom and the church are different, the church will always become man-focused. The kingdom is far bigger than the church. Far greater. Far bigger. The church has a beginning point and an end point. The church era, the church day will end. The kingdom will never end. The kingdom will never stop increasing in the government and the glory of God. Never, ever. So a few quick things about the kingdom just to give us the right focus. The kingdom was Christ's focus. It was the bookends of his ministry, Mark 1. And I didn't, I just didn't have time, so I didn't do great slides for you today. So you've already forgiven me because you guys are so like Jesus. It's awesome. So um, just use your actual Bibles. Mark 1, 14, 15. Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus came preaching. The, what does gospel mean? Good news. He came preaching the good news that there's two kingdoms and they're going to fight and the one's going to win. So the gospel is actually more focused on the kingdom, not on you. He came preaching the gospel, the good news, the kingdom is at hand. I've come to bring a kingdom, a spiritual kingdom. Acts 1, that's that's how he starts. Acts 1, the last thing, it says he spent 40 days speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God, then he ascended. The book ends of his ministry, the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. Luke 4, 43, when it was day, he departed and went in, this Jesus went into a deserted place, and the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. Why? Because it is good for them to have Jesus there, which is true. What's that? It's about us. Forget everyone else. We need you to stay here because we're about the happiness of man. What did he say? <coughs> Excuse me. I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. For this purpose, I was sent. I must preach the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, Luke 17, does not come with observation. You will not say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God, some translations say within you, but it's better to say, is in your midst. It's right here, it's at hand. Jesus, when he sent them out to heal, he says when a person gets healed, tell them, oh, the kingdom of God has come near to you. The word kingdom, by the way, means king's dominion, the authority of a king. It's his kingdom, like an old-fashioned kingdom, but also his authority. Matthew 12, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. You cannot take a physical kingdom and place it on a person. I mean, that's ludicrous. The kingdom of God has come upon you. You cannot take Israel and stick it on top of a person. 
He's saying something of my world has come and touched your life and changed you in a very real way. The kingdom has come upon you. Matthew 13, it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, he said to his disciples. And then he told them, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed seed in his field. The kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like that. All through his life here. It's like Jesus was saying, let me tell you about where I'm from. And it's nothing like here. In fact, it authored this place. Let me tell you about it. It has greater authority, greater reality. So, secondly, the kingdom was the focus of Jesus Christ. We have to understand that. Also, the kingdom was our given focus. <laughs> it's our given priority. Seek ye first the kingdom. The king's dominion. Seek first, Matthew 6. Seek first. That word first is the word, Greek word proton. It actually means first in in order, first in priority, first in authority, first in the day, first in your heart, first. Seek first the kingdom. I know what you need, but seek this. Understand it. See, heaven operates different to earth, friends. Jesus told his disciples to pray, let your kingdom come. And then he told them how? By doing his will here like it's done there. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. And I know we've heard this, but we need to hear it again. We want his kingdom to come. God, move. Bend your life around the will of God like Jesus bent his life around God's will. <laughs> Let your kingdom come. He wouldn't have told them. And he's told them to pray like that here now. Not, it's not talking about here now. This age. Let your kingdom come. Yeah. Let it come. Let it rule. Let it take over. Let it demonstrate. Let it change things. Let it shift regions and hearts. Let your kingdom come. He said, pray this, pray this, pray this. Let your kingdom come. Because it's our given priority and heaven functions so different from this place. So different. It's heaven's values. Heaven's structure. Heaven's heart. Heaven's authority. All of that, let your kingdom come. Your values, your principles. Why do you think that the principalities, you know, that there's principalities set over geographical regions of the earth, demonic principalities, hello? And thereby principles, values in the culture. Let your kingdom come. And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. <laughs> we could teach on that. It's not, it's not eating and it's not here or there. My kingdom is not of this world. He said that to a political leader, which I think he's sighed a big relief. He said, are you king of the Jews? He said, you say, rightly I am. I have a kingdom. He said, but it's not of this world because if it was, my servants would fight. In other words, he's telling Rome, I'm not here to change you. I'm here for the whole world. You just don't understand that then. My kingdom is not of this world. And he says, and then he actually says, uh, but now my kingdom is not from here. Meaning what? He said, but now my kingdom is not from here. Hello? Meaning what? One day it will be. He will come and reign here. The kingdom is real. And we could teach on each one of these. I'm just running through these quick. The kingdom is realized when it becomes practically real, when a, when a heart is changed, when a person is healed, when a family is put together, when a region comes to revival, the kingdom is realized. The kingdom of God will be realized through fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Hear me, there is no other way. There is no other way. I can give you principles, like Israel had principles. You can build on principles. You can even see, probably see some people healed and teach you some practical things and you'll actually see God. But genuine lasting change comes from the power of the Spirit that I have fellowship with the Spirit. The kingdom is not eating and drinking but righteousness, peace and joy. Where? In the Holy Spirit. In the Holy Spirit. The, re the realization of kingdom things, kingdom values, kingdom families, kingdom heart, kingdom regions will come as God's people learn what it is to partner with the Holy Spirit. 
And the scripture gives three commands about the Holy Spirit. And I know I'm going over a lot, but this is just still a lens. Oh, heaven help me. One of the three major commands you see in the New Testament about the Holy Spirit. Do not quench, do not grieve, do not blaspheme. We could go on a whole track just down that. Blaspheme actually means to attribute the works of the Spirit and say that they're actually the works of the devil. And you know, many people or many places are in danger of this. Why? Because when the power of God is so, it's been so long since the power of God has been in the church that when the power shows up, they think it's the devil. Do not quench. Do not grieve. Do not blaspheme. And this kingdom has keys. Jesus used the word church twice, and this kingdom has keys. And it's not like we think, little Peter at the pearly gates. Friends, that is crazy. It's not that. This is a carnal mind that made that up. Peter had a revelation. Matthew 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He had a revelation in the most demonic place, I believe, in the face of the earth. It was the place, even the book of Enoch. Don't go read it, but I have says where all the Nephilim and the demonic principalities gathered on that mountain in that exact place where that happened. And all through the history, Herod's palace was there, Pan's, Pan's palace, all these, the God of Pan, all that stuff. Jesus went and stood there. I only went there one time. And that's where you are the Christ came into the earth. Because there's no demonic force that can stop that revelation. So Peter says to you, and he says, on this rock, not, not you, not Peter the rock, that's, that's foolish. On the rock of the revelation of who I am, I will build my church. And when I build my church, then the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Is the gates of hell prevailing against the church? Yes. So who's building it? You see... When you have, think of, imagine in your mind, you walk down a street, in that alley, that person's getting abused, in that alley, there's drug addicts. Those are like little gates. I need to go in there and break down those gates and bring the kingdom. Because the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And he said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. He said I will give to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Why did he say that? Why did he say I will? Because he didn't have them yet. <sighs> Can I explain that for one minute? Sure. Do it. My wife gave me permission. <laughs> That's m miracles. <laughs> miracles, I tell you. We're done. We can go home. I'm no, just kidding. <laughs> See, I almost tripped. Look at that. When Jesus came into, baptized by John, baptized the Spirit of God, descended, and he went into the desert, and the devil tempted him. The devil took him up to a high place, and he says he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. That's a spiritual experience. It's not a place. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, I can give you these, because they have been delivered unto me, and I give them to whoever I wish. Who gave them to him? Adam. He usurped authority from Adam. He had the keys. And he did to the Lord, Cain and Abel. What was it, um, Jacob and Esau? Give me your birthright. You worship me. Betray your birthright as a son. You worship me and I'll give you what you want. Jesus said, shut up. Really. Get behind me. Go away. And he went and took the keys back legally through a sinless life through a sinless life, the power of the Spirit. Died, rose again. Obviously, we have the gospel. And then he said to Peter, I'm going to give those keys to you, not to him personally, to the church. So what are we doing with it? The keys of the kingdom. The authority. You know, that used to be a thing when a, when a king was gone and a steward would rule over a kingdom, they'd give him a little key. Like, not always, but, and they'd stick it on his shoulder here. It was, it was sewn in. He was known as a steward. He had a key to the kingdom. Didn't, it wasn't an actual thing. That, I mean, the little, those doors were big. Right? And it says, and the government will be upon his shoulder. 
and of the increase of his government, there will be no end. Where does the government of Christ rest? In the earth. You. In the body. And we have keys, power, authority, identity. So, even though we've gone so long, the king's bride. This is actually what I want to talk about. We'll do just a little bit today. The nature of the church, some people have called it before, but the king's bride, the king has the kingdom, the king's kingdom and the king's bride. Often if you want to understand the nature of God, the attributes of God, what do you do? You go look at all the names of God in the Old Testament. They tell you who he is, what he's done, what he's like. Same with the Holy Spirit, all the different functions and ministries and attributes of the Spirit. Go look at, I've, I've come up with about 37, but there's probably more. Just all the things that the Holy Spirit is described or said, the Spirit of truth and so forth in the New Testament. It tells you kind of what he does. It's the same with the church. What does the Bible call the church? It tells you the nature. It tells you the, the attributes. It tells you God's original intent. It, it opens it up for us to see, oh, that's what, that's what he wanted. And you look at what he called it. And he called it the following things. The church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the building of God, the temple, the family of God, the household of God, the flock, the children of light, the pillar and foundation of truth, the army of God, the house of prayer. And we are going to look at those. And we're excited, yeah? Have you ever asked yourself why you come here? <laughs> why do we come here every week? More than I like to worship. Because you see, humanism will so enter. It will so enter. So, well, I go to this church because I like to worship, but I go to that church because I like the preaching. Well, I go to this church because they have many services and, and I need um, the time for it to be like this because my family, the, so, I'm not mocking. But humanism is so entered. Instead of, and those things are great, instead of, Lord, where do you want me? I'll adjust. Tell them my dad says, that, that's awesome. <laughs> so firstly, the word church, only used by Jesus twice. Matthew 16, Matthew 18. Matthew 16, the one we've already quoted. And I'm just running through scriptures just because to go and read them all. Please go read them. Don't believe me. Test what I'm saying. I mean that. Be like the noble Bereans. Go and read it. Test it. Matthew 16. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not. That's the one time he mentioned church. And then he talked straight away about authority. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose will be loosed that natural application of the keys that I'm going to give you. The next time we mentioned church, Matthew 18, that was the universal church. The church is two things. That's universal. Every person on the earth that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the church. The church is also a local church. This, a congregation, an assembly, a gathering of saints. Jesus, the other time he used the word church in Matthew 18, he's talking about this. And the word is ecclesia. The actual word is said is ecclesia. You know, the Greeks were the ones who came up with the concept of democracy, but they never fully, they never fully utilized what they theorized about. The Romans took the Greeks' philosophy, the Greeks' amazing intellect, and they actually put it into practice, which is what gave them this incredible, incredible kingdom, in a sense, of Rome. And you know that the Rome, they started something called the Senate. And I know that's a sticky subject right now, but it wasn't like our Senate, okay? It wasn't like our Senate. The Senate there was more like the cabinet. They were hand-picked individuals. And I know I shared a little bit of this last year, so I can go fast. They were hand-picked people by that emperor, that king. He would hand-pick, choose them, and they would actually come and live with him because they had to know his intent, his heart, his mind because they believed, if I sit in this seat, I'm like God on the earth. That's how they thought. So they had to know the heart, the intentions, the, the desires, the will. To such a degree, it wasn't just written down that if they went somewhere, they could represent his heart without asking him. So they lived with him. 
And that was the, called the Roman Senate. They were the government, it was a, politi a governmental political body of Rome. They had full authority. Jesus, in that context, used that word, and he's the one who started using it. didn't exist before. He said, I will build my ecclesia. That's what Jesus, that's the word he used. To them, they're like, oh, governmental body of authority to represent the king's heart, his desires, his values, his principles, his kingdom, his nature, his power. That's the church. That's the church. The word ecclesia means gathering of citizens. People say the called out one, but it's, it's, they say that, but it's because they were specifically chosen. It means the, the gathering of those summoned or chosen. <laughs> but when we think of church, what do we think? It's not that. Jesus said that he will build the church on that revelation. You know who I am? I can pick you. I need I will gather my ecclesia and I will come and live with you and put my intentions and power and will in your heart. You know that Jesus, oh, here we go. Jesus never really created a religion. He appointed a branch of authority on the earth to represent heaven. That's the term he used. You are my ecclesia. They understood. Okay. That's why the church is not a building. It's not a denomination. It's not something you can go to. <laughs> so, that's just the word. That's just the word. And you see already, God, show us, help us, change us, empower us again, show us again. Let us see your heart, your vision. Somebody used to say, a great man of God by the name of Dudley Daniels, who I respect and admire very much, um, used to say, the church is the agency through which the kingdom comes. It's like an agency. I used to work for Gillette many years ago. We had an agency we were the agency for Gillette in that country. So Gillette's stuff came through our agency. We are the church. The kingdom comes through the church. The church is the body of Christ. Number two. We'll have to end with this one. I really wanted to get to the bride of Christ. Keep going. <laughs> The body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about, can, can I just read it to you? Let's read the Bible. You know what? We know these things. And I'm, I'm not trying to upset anyone today, but if I do, I'm okay. Because we know these things. Leonard, Ra Leonard Ravenhill used to say, it's not about being challenged where you changed. Because it's not... It's not comfortable for us to rebuild something in our thinking and in our heart. And yet that is the Christian life. Be not conformed. Do not be conformed any longer. Romans 12 verse 1 and 2. To what? The pattern of this world. But be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. You know that word transformed is the Greek word metamorphosis. It's the exact same word it uses in Matthew 17 with the transfiguration of Jesus Christ says be transfigured completely by learning to think like I think. So I will pick you and call you and you will come and live with me and I will come and live with you and my Father will come and make a home in your heart and we will give you the mind of Christ and a new heart and a new spirit and a new nature and we will tell you who we are, how we are, what is the church, who is the church, where is the church, why is the church and we will put it so into you See, when Christ gets hold of a person's heart, anything you do has purpose. You could work in a factory line. You could work in what you think is not an important job. 
You could, you could, anything you do, when Christ gets a hold of you, that whole thing changes, because now I do it unto him. All things I do, oh, I do it unto you. And you become the best employee and the best, and that is your mission field, and you pray for those people. Anything you do has purpose. Unless humanism enters. That is the end of purpose. The body of Christ, we have to read the Bible. All right. Body of Christ. Now there are many members, yet one body, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and we could go on. We are many members, but one body, physical body. What my body is to me, the church is to Christ. Colossians 1. Christ is the head of the body, the church. Ephesians 1. Christ, the head of the body, the church. Actually, I'm going to have to read it to you because i got some eyes looking at me like I'm wearing a strange clothes. Ephesians 1. And he put all things under his feet, verse 22, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him. We are called to be the fullness of Christ who fills all things in all. Colossians 1. Verse um, 19, no, sorry, 18, and he is the head of the body, speaking about Jesus, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. What my body is to me, the church is to Jesus Christ, meaning that, and people say, oh, that's unrealistic. No, it's not. It's not. We are to this region what the body of Christ is that Christ was to Galilee. Because we are here, and yet it's not about us. His body, his hands, his feet. And some of you are more like an eye. I know it's technically in the head, but you see the prophetic, you see the eye. Others are the hands, the love, the compassion, the healing. Others are, you know, you don't see anybody walking down a street, poking themselves in the eye, standing on their feet. There's a place for that. Yet the church does that all the time. I'm better than you, and you're better than me. Did you know what she said? It's like the church is walking down the street. And then we say to the world, come be like us. And they're like, "Uh uh-uh. Doesn't work. Why, friends? Because we lose connection to the head. Christ is the head of the body. What happens if you cut off someone's head? The body dies. People say, oh, this church is dead or that place is dead. Why? Presence of God, gone. The head is Christ. It's Christ. And God only inhabits what he designs. He only inhabits what he designs. And he has given us some blueprints here for the church. Friends, the church has hurt me more than it's hurt you. Probably. Because I lead, I know. I grew up in it. You will probably be offended by me, hurt by me one day. Because I talk more than you. We've got to get over that stuff. What has God said? Who are we? Why are we? You know, I learned with young people, and unless you give them something they're willing to die for, it's, it's just not enough. This is something willing to give your life for. And we'll end it there. We're going to go through some of that list, not all of them, one by one. You know, the church is a family. Oh, I'm excited to touch that one. Because families are messy. I know, because I have one. Church is the ecclesia, the governmental power of God on earth. Whenever two or three agree 
together in my name. There I am in the midst of them. And you know what it says there? Little two words we forget. It says, whenever two agree on earth. Ecclesia. Church. Can we stand? We're going to get into some of this. And I, I know some of us are like we know. We can go down the list. But some things we won't know. Some things I won't know. Sometimes I heard someone say this, a preacher, and it's very true. He was speaking and he says, don't worry, I'm hearing this for the first time too. You know, you want that. You want the Holy Spirit speaking. Dad, can, can you come pray for us? I'm just going to ask my dad to pray for us. Chris, do you have anything you want to pray for us? Okay. Sorry. Just, Lord, put him on my heart, sir. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you have invited us, you have called us, you have summoned us to be the church, the expression of who you are, the um, outworking of who you are. We thank you for that amazing privilege. We thank you for that amazing privilege that you saw it fit to call us each by name and say, come be part of my church, the expression of who I am, the expression of who I am here on earth. We thank you for that. We thank you for that. Help us to have insight and revelation on what you're telling us, Lord. Let it sink deep within us, I pray. I pray. So all that we express through us will be to your glory, will represent you the way you've chosen that to be, to represent you. And we pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father. Amen.